Western Europe, Chapters 1 and 2 Of Memoirs of a Revolutionist, Volume 2 By Peter Kropotkin This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by Ielin A storm raged in the North Sea As we approached the coast of England But I met the storm with delight I enjoyed the struggle of our steamer Against the furiously rolling waves And sat for hours on the stem the foam of the waves dashing into my face. After the two years I had spent in a gloomy casemate, every fibre of my inner self seemed to be throbbing with life and eager to enjoy the full intensity of life. My intention was not to stay abroad more than a few weeks or months, just enough time to allow the hue and cry caused by my escape to subside, and also to restore my health a little. I landed under the name of Levashov, the name under which I had left Russia, and, avoiding London, where the spies of the Russian embassy would soon have been at my heels, I went first to Edinburgh. It has, however, so happened that I have never returned to Russia. I was soon taken up by the wave of the anarchist movement, which was just then rising in Western Europe, and I felt that I should be more useful in helping that movement to find its proper expression than I could possibly be in Russia. In my mother country I was too well known to carry on an open propaganda, especially among the workers and the peasants, and later on, when the Russian movement became a conspiracy and an armed struggle against the representative of autocracy, all thought of a popular movement was necessarily abandoned, while my own inclinations drew me more and more intensely toward casting in my lot with the laboring and toiling masses. To bring to them such conceptions as would aid them to direct their efforts to the best advantage of all the workers, to deepen and to widen the ideals and principles which will underlie the coming social revolution, to develop these ideals and principles before the workers, not as an order coming from their leaders, but as a result of their own reason, and so to awaken their own initiative, now that they were called upon to appear in the historical arena as the builders of a new, equitable mode of organization of society. This seemed to me as necessary for the development of mankind as anything I could accomplish in Russia at that time. Accordingly, I joined the few men who were working in that direction in Western Europe, relieving those of them who had been broken down by years of hard struggle. When I landed at Hull and went to Edinburgh, I informed but a few friends in Russia and in the Jura Federation of my safe arrival in England. A socialist must always rely upon his own work for his living, and consequently, as soon as I was settled in the Scotch capital in a small room in the suburbs, I tried to find some work. Among the passengers on board our steamer there was a Norwegian professor with whom I talked, trying to remember the little that I formerly had known of the Swedish language. He spoke German. But as you speak some Norwegian, he said to me, and are trying to learn it, let us both speak it. You mean Swedish? I ventured to ask. I speak Swedish, don't I? Well, I should rather say Norwegian, certainly not Swedish, was his reply. Thus happened to me what had happened to one of Jules Verne's heroes, who had learned by mistake Portuguese instead of Spanish. At any rate, I talked a good deal with the professor, let it be in Norwegian, and he gave me a Christiania paper, which contained the reports of the Norwegian North Atlantic deep-sea expedition, just returned home. As soon as I reached Edinburgh, I wrote a note in English about these explorations, and sent it to Nature, 
which my brother and I used regularly to read at St. Petersburg from its first appearance. The sub-editor acknowledged the note with thanks, remarking with an extreme leniency which I have often met with since in England, that my English was all right, and only required to be made a little more idiomatic. I may say that I had learned English in Russia, and, with my brother, had translated pages, philosophy of geology, and Herbert Spencer's principles of biology. But I had learned it from books, and pronounced it very badly, so that I had the greatest difficulty in making myself understood by my Scotch landlady. Her daughter and I used to write on scraps of paper what we had to say to each other, and as I had no idea of idiomatic English, I must have made the most amusing mistakes. I remember, at any rate, protesting once to her, in writing, that it was not a cup of tea that I expected at tea-time, but many cups. I am afraid my landlady took me for a glutton, but I must say, by way of apology, that neither in the geological books I had read in English, nor in Spencer's biology, was there any allusion to such an important matter as tea-drinking. I got from Russia the journal of the Russian Geographical Society, and soon began to supply the Times also with occasional paragraphs about Russian geographical explorations. Pshevalsky was at that time in Central Asia, and his progress was followed in England with interest. However, the money I had brought with me was rapidly disappearing, and all my letters to Russia being intercepted, I could not succeed in making my address known to my relatives. So I moved in a few weeks to London, thinking I could find more regular work there. The old refugee, P. L. Lavrov, continued to edit at London his newspaper forward, but as I hoped soon to return to Russia, and the editorial office of the Russian paper must have been closely watched by spies, I did not go there. I went, very naturally, to the office of nature, where I was most cordially received by the sub-editor, Mr. J. Scott Kelty. The editor wanted to increase the column of notes, and found that I wrote them exactly as they were required. A table was consequently assigned me in the office, and scientific reviews in all possible languages were piled upon it. Come every Monday, Mr. Levashov, I was told, look over these reviews, and if there is any article that strikes you as worthy of notice, write a note, or mark the article. We will send it to a specialist. Mr. Kelty did not know, of course, that I used to rewrite each note three or four times before I dared to submit my English to him. But taking the scientific reviews home, I soon managed very nicely, with my nature notes and my times paragraphs, to get a living. I found that the weekly payment on Thursday of the paragraph contributions to the times was an excellent institution. To be sure, there were weeks when there was no interesting news from Przewalski, and news from other parts of Russia was not found interesting. In such cases my fare was bread and tea only. One day, however, Mr. Kelty took from the shelf several Russian books, asking me to review them for nature. I looked at the books, and, to my embarrassment, saw that they were my own works on the glacial period and the orography of Asia. My brother had not failed to send them to our favorite, nature. I was in great perplexity, and putting the books into my bag, took them home, to reflect upon the matter. What shall I do with them, I asked myself. I cannot praise them, because they are mine, 
and I cannot be too sharp on the other, as I hold the views expressed in them. I decided to take them back next day, and explained to Mr. Kelty that, although I had introduced myself under the name of Levashov, I was the author of these books, and could not review them. Mr. Kelty knew from the papers about Kropotkin's escape, and was very much pleased to discover the refugee safe in England. As to my scruples, he remarked wisely that I need neither scold nor praise the author, but could simply tell the readers what the books were about. From that day a friendship, which still continues, grew up between us. In November or December 1876, seeing in the letter-box of P. L. Lavrov's paper an invitation for K. to call at the editorial office to receive a letter from Russia, and thinking that the invitation was for me, I called at the office, and soon established friendship with the editor and the younger people who printed the paper. When I called for the first time at the office, my beard shaved and my top hat on, and asked the lady who opened the door, in my very best English, Is Mr. Lavrov in? I imagined that no one would ever know who I was, as long as I had not mentioned my name. It appeared, however, that the lady, who did not know me at all, but well knew my brother while he stayed at Zurich, at once recognized me and ran upstairs to say who the visitor was. I knew you immediately, she said afterwards, by your eyes, which reminded me of those of your brother. That time I did not stay long in England. I was in lively correspondence with my friend James Guillaume of the Jura Federation, and as soon as I found some permanent geographical work, which I could do in Switzerland as well as in London, I removed to Switzerland. The letters that I got at last from home told me that I might as well stay abroad, as there was nothing particular to be done in Russia. A wave of enthusiasm was rolling over the country at that time in favour of the Slavonians who had revolted against the age-long Turkish oppression, and my best friends, Sergei, Stepniak, Kelnitz, and several others had gone to the Balkan Peninsula to join the insurgents. We read, my friends wrote, the daily news correspondence about the horrors in Bulgaria, we weep at the reading, and go next to enlist either as volunteers in the Balkan insurgents' bands or as nurses. I went to Switzerland, joined the Jura Federation of the International Workingmen's Association, and following the advice of my Swiss friends, settled in La Chaux de Fonds. Western Europe, Chapter 2 the Jura Federation has played an important part in the modern development of socialism. It always happens that after a political party has set before itself a purpose, and has proclaimed that nothing short of the complete attainment of that aim will satisfy it, it divides into two fractions. One of them remains what it was, while the other, although it professes not to have changed a word of its previous intentions, accepts some sort of compromise and gradually, from compromise to compromise, is driven farther from its primitive program, and becomes a party of modest makeshift reform. Such a division had occurred within the International Workingmen's Association. Nothing less than an expropriation of the present owners of land and capital, and a transmission of all that is necessary for the production of wealth to the producers themselves, was the avowed aim of the association at the outset. The workers of all nations were called upon to form their own organizations for a direct struggle against capitalism, to work out the means of socializing the production of wealth and its consumption, 
and, when they should be ready to do so, to take possession of the necessaries for production, and to control production with no regard to the present political organization, which must undergo a complete reconstruction. The association had thus to be the means for preparing an immense revolution in men's minds, and later on in the very forms of life, a revolution which would open to mankind a new era of progress based upon the solidarity of all. That was the ideal which aroused from their slumber millions of European workers, and attracted to the association its best intellectual forces. However, two fractions soon developed. When the war of 1870 had ended in a complete defeat of France, and the uprising of the Paris Commune had been crushed, and the draconian laws which were passed against the association excluded the French workers from participation in it, and when, on the other hand, parliamentary rule had been introduced in united Germany, the goal of the radicals since 1848, an effort was made by the Germans to modify the aims and the methods of the whole socialist movement. The conquest of power within the existing states became the watchword of that section, which took the name of social democracy. The first electoral successes of this party at the elections to the German Reichstag aroused great hopes. The number of the social democratic deputies having grown from two to seven and next to nine, it was confidently calculated by otherwise reasonable men that before the end of the century the social democrats would have a majority in the German parliament and would then introduce the socialist popular state by means of suitable legislation. The socialist ideal of this party gradually lost the character of something that had to be worked out by the labor organizations themselves and became state management of the industries, in fact, state socialism, that is, state capitalism. Today, in Switzerland, the efforts of the social democrats are directed in politics towards centralization as against federalism, and in the economic field to promoting the state management of railways and the state monopoly of banking and of the sale of spirits. The state management of the land and of the leading industries and even of the consumption of riches, would be the next step in a more or less distant future. Gradually, all the life and activity of the German Social Democratic Party was subordinated to electoral considerations. Trade unions were treated with contempt, and strikes were met with disapproval, because both diverted the attention of the workers from electoral struggles. Every popular outbreak, every revolutionary agitation in any country of Europe, was received by the social democratic leaders with even more animosity than by the capitalist press. In the Latin countries, however, this new direction found but few adherents. The sections and federations of the international remained true to the principles which had prevailed at the foundation of the association. Federalist by their history, hostile to the idea of a centralized state, and possessed of revolutionary traditions, the Latin workers could not follow the evolution of the Germans. The division between the two branches of the socialist movement became apparent immediately after the Franco-German War. The International, as I have already mentioned, had created a governing body in the shape of a general council which resided at London, and the leading spirits of that council being two Germans, Engels and Marx, the council became the stronghold of the new social democratic direction while the inspirers and intellectual leaders of the Latin federations were Bakunin and his friends. 
The conflict between the Marxists and the Bakunists was not a personal affair. It was the necessary conflict between the principles of federalism and those of centralization, the free commune and the state's paternal rule, the free action of the masses of the people, and the betterment of existing capitalist conditions through legislation, a conflict between the Latin spirit and the German geist, which, after the defeat of France on the battlefield, claimed supremacy in science, politics, philosophy, and in socialism too, representing its own conception of socialism as scientific, while all other interpretations it described as utopian. At the Hague Congress of the International Association, which was held in 1872, the London General Council, by means of a fictitious majority, excluded Bakunin, his friend Guillaume, and even the Jura Federation from the International. But as it was certain that most of what remained then of the International, that is, the Spanish, the Italian, and the Belgian Federations, would sign with the Jurassians, the Congress tried to dissolve the Association. A new general council, composed of a few social democrats, was nominated in New York, where there were no workmen's organizations belonging to the association to control it, and where it has never been heard of since. In the meantime, the Spanish, the Italian, the Belgian, and the Jura federations of the International continued to exist and to meet as usual, for the next five or six years, in annual international congresses. The Jura Federation, at the time when I came to Switzerland, was the centre and the leading voice of the international federations. Bakunin had just died, July 1, 1876, but the federation retained the position it had taken under his impulse. The conditions in France, Spain, and Italy were such that only the maintenance of the revolutionary spirit that had developed amongst the internationalist workers previous to the Franco-German War prevented the governments from taking decisive steps toward crushing the whole labor movement and inaugurating the reign of white terror. It is well known that the re-establishment of a Bourbon monarchy in France was very near becoming an accomplished fact. Marshal McMahon was maintained as president of the Republic only in order to prepare for a monarchist restoration. The very day of the solemn entry of Henry V into Paris was settled, and even the harnesses of the horses, adorned with the pretender's crown and initials, were ready. And it is also known that it was only the fact that Gambetta and Clemenceau, the opportunist and the radical, had covered wide portions of France with committees, armed and ready to rise as soon as the coup d'état should be made, which prevented the proposed restoration. But the real strength of those committees was in the workers, many of whom had formerly belonged to the international and had retained the old spirit. Speaking from personal knowledge, I may venture to say that the radical middle-class leaders would have hesitated in case of an emergency, while the workers would have seized the first opportunity for an uprising which, beginning with the defense of the Republic, might have gone further on in the socialist direction. The same was true in Spain. As soon as the clerical and aristocratic surroundings of the king drove him to turn the screws of reaction, the Republicans menaced him with a movement in which, they knew, the real fighting element would be the workers. In Catalonia alone there were over 100,000 men in strongly organized trade unions, and more than 80,000 Spaniards belonged to the International, regularly holding congresses and punctually paying their contributions to the association with a truly Spanish sense of duty. 
I can speak of these organizations from personal knowledge, gained on the spot, and I know that they were ready to proclaim the United States of Spain, abandon ruling the colonies, and in some of the most advanced regions make serious attempts in the direction of collectivism. It was this permanent menace which prevented the Spanish monarchy from suppressing all the workers' and peasants' organizations, and from inaugurating a frank clerical reaction. Similar conditions prevailed also in Italy. The trade unions in North Italy had not reached the strength they have now, but parts of Italy were honeycombed with international sections and republican groups. The monarchy was kept under continual menace of being upset, should the middle-class republicans appeal to the revolutionary elements among the workers. In short, looking back upon these years, from which we are separated now by a quarter of a century, I am firmly persuaded that if Europe did not pass through a period of stern reaction after 1871, this was mainly due to the spirit which was aroused in Western Europe before the Franco-German War, and has been maintained since by the anarchist internationals, the Blancists, the Mazzinians, and the Spanish cantonalist republicans. Of course, the Marxists, absorbed by their local electoral struggles, knew little of these conditions anxious not to draw the thunderbolts of Bismarck upon their heads, and fearing above all that a revolutionary spirit might make its appearance in Germany and lead to repressions which they were not strong enough to face, they not only repudiated, for tactical purposes, all sympathy with the Western revolutionists, but gradually became inspired with hatred toward the revolutionary spirit, and denounced it with virulence wheresoever it made its appearance, even when they saw its first signs in Russia. No revolutionary papers could be printed in France at that time, under Marshal MacMahon. Even the singing of the Maxillaise was considered a crime, and I was once very much amazed at the terror which seized several of my co-passengers in a train when they heard a few recruits singing the revolutionary song, in May 1878. "'Is it permitted again to sing the Maxillaise?' they asked one another with anxiety." The French press had consequently no socialist papers. The Spanish papers were very well edited, and some of the manifestos of their congresses were admirable expositions of anarchist socialism, but who knows anything of Spanish ideas outside of Spain? As to the Italian papers, they were all short-lived, appearing, disappearing, and reappearing elsewhere, under different names, and admirable as some of them were, they did not spread beyond Italy. Consequently, the Jura Federation, with its papers printed in French, became the centre for the maintenance and expression in the Latin countries of the spirit which, I repeated, saved Europe from a very dark period of reaction. And it was also the ground upon which the theoretical conceptions of anarchism were worked out by Bakunin and his followers, in a language that was understood all over continental Europe. End of Western Europe, Chapter 2